started. I'm, I'm actually late here, but that's all right. Um, come on, red light. And you know what? It, I stand here, and, and it on. records this, but it doesn't let me know, and I'm not leaving until I see that red light come on. So, so you should just, like, juggle or something. Yeah. Like oh, there it is. It's on. Red light. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And, uh, Jim, if you would, uh, Psalm 119, verse 41. Let me get there. Psalm you got it. 119, 119. 119, verse 41. <laughs> 41. Is that where it is? That's where it is. <laughs> hey, Tom Alley. What's that? Which verse? 41. 41. Yep. Vav. Vav, yep. What is that? Yes. Vav. peg. Add secure hook. May your unfailing, unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Oh, amen. You know, wow. This is what my granddaughters read. It says, I will walk at liberty. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Liberty College. I will walk at liberty. Absolutely. Okay, let's say a prayer here to get us open. Heavenly Father. We thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence, and thank you for the nice crowd we have here today. And uh, we have a prayer request immediately for uh, the uh, wife of Lyle here, Sibby, who's got um, uh, bronchitis and strep throat, that she would get over that quickly and that the uh, antibiotics would take good care of her. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to meet here and to share in your word and to just, just get to know you better. And we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we do it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, just so you all know, you came in a little bit late. This is Lyle Anderson, came all the way from Arizona, and uh, they're traveling around in their RV, and uh, he's only here for right now, and then after class he's taken off and going somewhere, but uh, uh, didn't get to meet his wife, Sibby, but they, they attend mm -hmm. online. How and, long have you been uh, attending? Uh, two years. At least, yeah, it's yeah, been a while. Yeah. yeah. What's always amazing is that a new face will pop in, and, and they know us, yeah. <laughs> but we don't know you. Oh, boy, yeah. It that's... feels really bad from on our behalf. But... He walked in, and I was like, I want to make sure that's you, you know? And I, I'm like, okay. Oh, gosh. So there you go. It's a pleasure having you here, Lyle, and I appreciate it very much, making the effort. Um, so here we have um, Romans. Hi, Carol. Romans 2, verse uh, 21 is where we're at today. 21, I think did a lot last week. Yeah, we did four verses last week, and you didn't attend online apparently, so no, we were in the air. Okay, you missed the best class ever. Sorry, I have no idea. We went through it, and that was what it was. We were happy to get home. Oh yeah, I bet. Wow. Yeah, let's see. Just start at seventeen because that's the beginning of a paragraph, and that'll give us some context. Okay, my paragraph is titled "The Jews and the Law." Mm-hmm. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, instructor of the foolish, teacher of the infants, of infants, because you have 
in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Then 21 says, yep. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Sounds just like James, doesn't it? He's, he's yes. putting them up in the same uh, same box there. And just so you know, this is uh, you weren't here last week, were you, Rick? No. Steve was, but Rick wasn't. This is Rick's no, first uh, Thursday. I was here two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Was. That's right. I'm trying last to get this year. right. but uh, I was out yeah. stealing. Yeah, last, <laughs> out stealing. Yeah, like, we, we haven't seen him since last year. So, uh, You're only, you've only a chapter difference. So. Well, that's true. We're, we're moving right along. So uh, there you go. Okay, we're in verse 221, and he read that, and uh, I'll give you my comments and maybe something while I'm reading. Uh, based on his statement in verses 17 through 20, in good, good context, I'm glad we did that, Paul now asks a series of questions in verses 21 through 23. The questions, however, begin with, therefore, and thus imply an answer opposite to what would normally be expected. By using a question in this manner, it makes the answer all the more forceful and undeniable. As I said before, and I've been saying this for a couple weeks, he is setting up his brothers, the Jews, who are clinging to the law instead of going on the grace of Christ. And that's just Paul's nature. He's very good about how he does this. And um, uh, he uh, has several different types of arguments that he uses. And this is a, a good one where he, he introduces something, he gets people feeling secure, and then he tears down their security. So. Hello, ma'am. Can we help you with anything? <laughs> Good to have you. Okay, so beginning with the concept of an instructor, passing on instruction, he asks, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? The answer will be, of course, no. The Jews who have the law have been shown to not live by the law which they possess. That's the whole, not the whole purpose, but one of the many purposes of the giving of the law was to show that Israel could not keep the law. Along with about seven or eight other precepts that we've gone through in the past, it was to demonstrate that nobody could keep the law perfectly. The man after God's own heart, David, failed before the law. The entire nation as a whole failed before the law. It goes all the way through the Old Testament demonstrating that this great law of God could not be met by the people. And that's what he's letting them know right now. To show this, he his first indictment is con concerning theft. You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Obviously, not every person reading his words are impl implicated in theft, okay? But Paul is making a general observation based on the society in which he lived and which both rejected Christ and then nailed him to the cross. <laughs> the oral and possibly written testimony at that time by those who bore witness to him showed this. Jesus' accusation against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3 is one instance uh, that we can verify that precept. So let me go there really quickly. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. Matthew 23, 2 and 3. He says, uh, wow. 20, uh, one page, Charlie. 23, 2 and 3. He says, well, I'll start with 21. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, uh, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Okay, so he set that uh, right out in the open, okay? Jesus' accusation against the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 2 and 3, in one instance, uh, can verify that. These are the very people who possessed the law 
and instructed out of it. They sat in Moses' seat, and yet Jesus showed that they did not live by the standards which they taught. Okay? Now, um, something that you may or may not be aware of if you don't watch the sermons or if you don't pay attention to them, because we have a couple people that sleep during the class but, um, or during the uh, sermons, but um, the law of Moses did not end with Moses. And that's why Jesus uses the term, those who sit in Moses' seat. The law continued to be an ongoing law with new commandments and new precepts all the way up until the time of its annulment in Christ. And how do we know that's true? There's several precepts that we can give you. One is the term sitting in Moses' seat. Two, prophets came along and they said things which Israel was bound to do. And um, one other precept is that um, uh, in, what is it, uh, John 19, where uh, Caiaphas says something, don't you know that it's better for one man to die than for the uh, whole nation to perish, okay? And what did, how did John analyze that? That he was prophesying. He was prophesying, okay? He was saying something that was actually binding the nation of, he didn't say this by his own spirit or on his own, but he did it under the spirit of prophecy, or I know I blew that. But you see, the law did not end with Moses. It continued on. It was a corporate body of laws all the way up until the time of its annulment. And so that's one thing that we need to keep in mind is a precept concerning the law. And the law was a burden, and it continued to become more burdensome on the people throughout the time of the law. Yes, sir? I saw a synagogue down in Beersheba. This was on a film. Right. And it had a seat there, and the guy explained to us that that's Moses' seat. Moses' seat. That's where the person you knew that was presiding over things. Presiding over, that's yeah. absolutely right. It, you know, it didn't say the seat of the law, it said Moses' seat. They are carrying on Moses' work. Joshua carried on Moses' work all the way through there. But yeah, that's correct. They, they had that, and they also had um, uh, a column that you would stand by if you were speaking to the synagogue. Did you see that when you were over there? No. Oh, you watched that on TV. If you go to Israel, you can go to some of these ancient synagogues, and one of them was in um, the place that Jesus cursed, uh, Bethsaida? Is that one of them? That he, yeah, okay, so that was it. And it's this uh, volcanic, rocky area. And I'm going to tell you what, when he curses a place, it's done because there's nothing there. And, but they reconstructed the basic outline of this synagogue. They know exactly where this column that you stood at, where, where uh, it, it was in that synagogue. And so we know exactly where Jesus stood when he was in that synagogue. And that was a humbling thing to walk wow. into there and to find out that he stood right there. Now, my thought was, as the world is turning and it's spinning throughout the galaxy... He may have stood in that exact spot, but it's not the same position, if you know what I'm saying. So I didn't feel bad about standing there. because <laughs> Nor was it the same time. Once yeah, it wasn't the, the same time. That's right. The, things are changing around there. But i got to tell you what, even then, I felt almost not right going to that spot there because it was such a, a marvelous thing to consider because he stood right there. And if they find, uh, like, Capernaum, they know where that one is and, uh, you know, all these different places, and they can say, we know that Jesus was right here. Very humbling thought. Anyway, um, okay, so um, on another occasion, Jesus explicitly called those who controlled the temple grounds thieves. This is in Matthew 21, 13. So let me pull that out. Matthew 21, 13 says, um, and we, we know it, but we'll just read it anyway. Matthew 21, 13, 26, 25, 24, 23, 20, okay, 21, verse 13 says, um, uh, uh, verse 12, Then Jesus went to the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, and overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. 
these are all obviously Levites that are doing this. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So there you go. Paul is saying, do you steal? Right? He's asking this almost rhetorical question. The answer has to be yes. And, you know, in one way or another, we've all stolen something. We've stolen God's glory from him, if nothing else. So uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, the exact things which the law forbade are the things that they practiced not just in a secret way, but out and open. Right there by Jesus' words, right out and open. They're thieves. The exact things, oh, I've said that, uh, their actions became a festering wound within the society because the actions of the leaders were seen by all. When this happens, even the commoners begin to act in the same manner. We've got somebody in the White House that acts in a certain way, and it's filtered down to the rest of the nation. We've seen that. You know, when you get an upright president, morality tends to increase in the land. That's another one of the things that we can learn from the Old Testament, that a nation is judged because of its leader. And when the leader departs from morality, the nation gets judged. And thank goodness, at least we have a change right now. We haven't had any great judgment, but uh, if you think of the sins of Manasseh, it says even after Manasseh was out, right? Uh, who was it that came after him? Josiah, good King Josiah. And he says, I'm sorry, for the sake of the sins of Manasseh, I will not forgive Judah and he destroyed the land and the people were exiled. And I don't know what the Lord's feeling is about our current president, but he has murdered millions of children, millions. He's been personally responsible for that along with the party that governed this land. And the things that he has done have been utter wickedness. Utter, you know, and I don't understand how people can't see this. We had something on uh, CNN today, I was looking at Drudge. And uh, if you don't know, four people of a certain color tortured one person of another color in Chicago, okay? And CNN is saying there's nothing evil about it. I don't see that as evil at all. And he tried to justify it because of the color of the people's skin. The White House wouldn't make a comment on it. It's too early to make a judgment on it. When, remember the Sheriff Joe incident, where Sheriff Joe did something, and the first thing he did was say he was stupid. Without knowing any of the facts, he implicated this police officer, and then he had to pull him up to the White House and give him a beer and apologize. So uh, this is the type of attitude that we've had. I don't know what the Lord is going to look at in America for the past eight years if he's going to say, I'm going to give this guy Trump a chance or if I'm just going to judge him. And we'll find out soon enough. But uh, I, I, I don't see great hope for this nation. I was here with a guy talking about his ministry yesterday, and he had just the opposite view. I think there's going to be a great revival and there's going to be this and that, and I, I personally don't see it. I do not see this nation having a great revival. We have elected a different path, but I don't think that it is particularly a religious path. I think it's, it's a path that people wanted a change, they wanted you know, populism, they wanted to return to America, whatever. And religion has not been a key role in it. And unless we're humbled through some type of uh, <coughs> uh, problem, I don't know if it's going to be one. And. Uh, so there you go, it's just an opinion on that, but it bears with what Paul is saying here as far as the morality of the nation of Israel. We're just following suit with it. Well, just think so. about Nineveh. Nineveh, yeah. I mean, you know, Jonah, they turned back to the God, and 100 years later... 100 years later, they were right back where they were. Yeah. That's right, it was a short-lived, but it was a turning, and uh, it's funny, I typed Jonah chapter 3, which is that passage, last Monday, and so tomorrow I start Jonah... One verse, uh, four verse one on uh, Monday. I'll start typing that. But uh, it's it's a great book. There's all kinds of fun stuff in there. But um, uh, that's what we're doing next. Yeah, we'll be in Jonah for. It, it's going to be short. It's going to be maybe I don't know. I think 
seven seven sermons. It's just a wee little book, and it doesn't have the detail the, that uh, that um, Ruth had. But it'll be fun. There'll be some interesting things out of there, I'm sure. But so is uh, it just a break before Leviticus. Before Leviticus, yeah, same as same as when we did Ruth. So just a little break, and then we'll get into uh, into that. But I'm I'm interested to see how it turns out at the end of chapter four because I've been doing chapter one through three and you know all this great stuff and. I don't know how the story's going to end, so we'll see. But and I do know. I'm just being a jerk. Um, okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, uh, festering wound. I said that. Okay, a perfect example. And I talked about it. Now I've got it written here, and I ought to read my notes first. But a perfect example of this is our nation today. Theft in Washington is so open and so brazen, transferring money from those who earn it to those who don't, that society sees this as normal and acceptable, when in fact it's robbery. They, the people that get into power, will, I love those Trump socks, look at her socks there. Um, uh, the people that are in power pass unjust laws and they unjustly take from people that earn and they give it to people that don't earn. I have no problem with giving money to people that are physically handicapped and cannot work. I have no problem with that. If somebody has two arms and two legs and is physically able to work, and we see hundreds of them every Saturday morning and they get their check they, they gripe when they don't get their transfer of funds on time for their EBT card and all that stuff. It, it is almost nauseous to see that because they're not willing to go out and work. And what was it? Is it Maine, New Hampshire? One of the states recently passed a work Maine. for welfare. What was it? Maine. 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 Work for welfare program. Good job because at least they're making them do something to earn and go out and pick up garbage on the highway. Do something. And but they're... Uh, they're Rolls went from 13,000 to under 3,000. Wonderful. And that's what everybody in America, we should, we should insist that our Congress does this in the next four years. We should insist that that happens to get these people. It's not only robbing people of their hard-earned money. It is also robbing people of their dignity that are receiving the money. So you're robbing on both sides of that. And the next generation. And the next generation as well. There, it is all being robbed. Don't help the helpless. Just make them comfortable in their helplessness. That's right. That's all they shoot for. That, that's and, right. And out in Arizona, we have these signs all over the place. A fed bear is a dead bear. Oh, boy. That's oh. right. That's, that's exactly right. So there we go. It, it equates the stealing of the society. equates to the stealing of the people. The open wound cannot be healed with the leaders who are no more than bully thugs. Favors are bought and sold, and exemptions are made for some but not for others. This leads to societal breakdown in every man for himself. And the same was true with Israel at Jesus' time. Hello, how are you? Um, as is evidenced by the gospel record. Again, we turn to Matthew 15, verses 3 through 6, to see open theft by the instructors of the law. Matthew, uh, what did I say, 15, verses 3 through 6. Matthew, it's funny, I type these things, and I don't even remember what I put in there, so I'm learning too. Matthew 15, uh, Three through six. He answered and said to them, Why do you trans oh yes, good one. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Sounds just like Washington, D.C., but in their, their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines 
the commandments of men. And if you don't understand what he was saying there, that's uh, uh, something called korban. korban where, that's right. You can take and you can make a donation of your inheritance to the temple. Okay? And you can say, I am donating this to the Lord's temple or to his service. And then, when you want it, you just take the money back and you say it's no longer devoted. And so they would rob their parents of their being taken care of in their old age so that they wouldn't have to take care of them in an act of piety, saying, well, I'm taking care of the Lord's people in the, in the meantime. And then they'd receive their money back and spend it, and the parents who had worked for them were left out. And that's exactly what we have in our society today. We, it's almost a one-for-one. One. It's a different, it, that's a religious precept, but the people that do it up in Washington do it under the guise of false religion. They do it under the guise of, you know, we, we need to have Christian ethics, when that has nothing to do with Christianity. If you don't work, don't thank eat. you, you don't eat, right? The Bible is very clear, and they take verses out of context. They, what was that guy's name? A cook. Uh, he was the uh, advisor up there, um, began with the C, to Bill Clinton. Um, horrible guy. Um, and he would use this social gospel, and he'd whisper in Clinton's ear, and he'd say, the, oh, oh. Campola or something. Tony, Tony, Tony Campola, yeah. Horrible. Horrible that they would mislead, and you know, whether you like him or not, Bill Clinton simply was not a theologian. People did that with Trump before he was elected. They, they, they treat them like they need to have a certain religious bar in order to be elected. That's not the way it works in this nation. There are people that are elected that are politicians, and then they usually get advisors for different areas, for the state, for the Justice Department, for religious issues, and they accept the advice of these people. And if you get a bad religious person, you're going to be misled. Politicians trust in other people to make decisions like that. So anyway, it bears directly on what's happening in America, what happened back in Israel's time, almost one for one. Um, oh, I, I explained it here. The practice of Korban was getting a way of getting around taking care of one's own parents. Um, by devoting assets or money to God, these things could no longer be used for anything else. By making something so devoted, the gift could not be used to help the parents, and it was actually bound to the temple treasury either. It was something in a state of limbo. It could uh, only be given to the temple or used by the giver. By agreeing to this precept, the leaders in Israel were committing theft against the people who needed it most, the parents who had raised the person and now needed the same care in their old age. So I explained it and worked out that my old typing matches what I said. I'm glad about that. Um, the moral responsibility of those who have the law increases. It does not decrease, nor is there an exemption because of the knowledge they possess. Once again, what happens in Washington when somebody has the knowledge of the law? They use it for their benefit while harming other people. And so the same precepts, even though it's a political structure up there, and Israel was a religious political structure, it's the same thing that's happening. Okay, Knowledge in no way negates right action. Instead, it calls for it and it demands it. When you have knowledge, those who uh, know to do right and do not do it will be treated, will be punished with many stripes. Those who do not know, and I know I misquoted that, but they'll receive few stripes, okay? Knowledge increases guilt. It does not decrease it. When you are a knowledgeable person under the law, such as Paul was, he was wholly responsible for the infractions that he um, had against the Christians. He should have known better. God had mercy on him, and that's why he could say he was the chief of sinners, is because he was, in fact, the chief of sinners, having such a large knowledge of the body of the law and still sinning against God. But God had mercy on him. And so knowledge increases guilt. It doesn't decrease it. 
Um, he said in Timothy, he said, I did it ignorantly. Ignorantly. That's right. He did it, but he should have known. Yeah. It's like the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. They were told, don't do this thing. So they should have not done it, but they didn't have a knowledge of right and wrong. And so you have this kind of almost hard to understand thing that happened. But well, I was talking with a good friend of mine about this um, uh, via email. He sent me a, a, a very interesting analysis on Islam. Something really bothered him that he had read in um, he was trying to evaluate uh, Islam and its ties to what is right or wrong and um, he came to one verse that just troubled him because he said why isn't something like that in the Bible and he evaluated it and eventually he realized it because it's, it's a faulty premise and he gave me this long analysis on it and he says it was funny how he did it he said something about um, uh, I don't understand why God allowed man to fall and then about three sentences later, four sentences later, he answered it. And so I went back to him and I said, you answered your own question. You may not realize it, but it was because there is something better ahead. We could not have appreciated the glory of God unless we fell. You need to have a contrast in order to appreciate goodness and bad. And so they had no knowledge of good or evil. And without that knowledge, all they had was good. And until they lost the good, they couldn't want the good back. And so now we are in this horribly crummy state, even though there's a lot of good in life. You know, I love my wife, I love my puppies, and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, everything dies, everything is corruptible, there's pain, there's sorrow, you know, we get sick, all of these things. We have that as a contrast to what we have been promised. We haven't received what we've been promised, but we know that there is something far, far better ahead. And when we receive it, we are going to be hugely grateful for it, just as Eve would have been if she could have gone back and she couldn't, okay? She's still waiting for it. But the contrast is what makes all of this worthwhile. And so there is a good end to it. But anyway, uh, did I finish that? Yes, life application from this verse. And see, we did one verse in 30 minutes. Whipped right through it. Um, here we are studying the Bible and looking deeply into its precepts. We are gaining knowledge, and thus more will be expected of us. Now think of this. You're all getting some type of knowledge and if you have learned something that is a precept that you are now bound to in your life, like not stealing, you are more guilty before that precept than you were before. And so a lot of people can say, ignorance is bliss. I don't want to know what the Bible says. I know that I'm saved by Jesus. And I think, what a shame, you know, not to want to pursue God after coming to know Jesus. But ignorance is bliss. And so they're not held as accountable for the actions that they have. But they're held accountable for not pursuing God. And that in itself is a lack of reward. And ignorance so, breeds ignorance. Yeah, ignorance breeds ignorance. And so we have churches that are filled with ignorance. And that's why yeah, I was talking to the guy that was here yesterday. You know, like I said, we were talking about ministry and all that. And um, he, he has a certain thing that he wants to do. And we talked about whether it was right or wrong or not. And um, one of the things that I mentioned was uh, the Methodists. Yesterday I read something, and I don't think it'll be in this prophecy update. Maybe I'll add in next week, or maybe no, it is. It's in this week's, unless I have to take it out. But um, I've said this before, but it's something to understand. They have a book of discipline, and the uh, Anglican Church has, you know, catechisms, and they have things like that. The problem with having those is that they can be amended by man. This cannot be amended by man. Okay, and so what do they do? They have a catechism which says this precept and this precept and this precept. One of them has always traditionally been in churches that men are to be ordained as ministers because that's what the Bible calls for. 
Okay, it does not allow, and I know this upsets people. I always get an email the next day about this, but the Bible does not allow women to be ministers of a church. Okay, pastors and preachers, and it's not allowed. Okay, um, and they have a book of discipline that they refer to, and they say um, men will be ordained as ministers. Blah 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 blah. Okay, well, thirty years from now, there's a war. And, you know, all these people die, and there's not enough men. They're not going into seminary. And so they need to make a decision. What do we do? We need to keep our churches open. We need to keep, uh, you know, the revenue coming in, and they've got their, their retirements to look forward to. And so they say, well, the book of discipline needs to be amended. We will allow women to be deacons. Okay, we've got a Baptist church down on Main Street now that has um, deacons that two are women. Of two of them. I'm a two women in one church. Okay, there you go. And... Um, uh, so from there, they will have, just like the Methodists, in a couple more years, they will have a need for a preacher, and they're not going to get a suitable preacher, because a suitable preacher will say, I will not go to that church because they have female deacons, okay? And so they're going to say, oh, well, we, we don't have any good candidates, so now we need to amend our book of order in order to have a female pastor. And this is how this has happened. One precept after another, they no longer hold this. If you refer to this, then you wouldn't allow these things to happen. But when you have a book of discipline or when you have a book of order or any of these type of things, it can be amended and it becomes the guiding precept for that institution. And you can't do that. You can have, you know, you know, this is our, our statement of faith or something, and you can, but nobody ever reads them. And another thing about statement of faith that I have noticed is that if you go to a statement of faith on a church website, it is 99.327% of the time just cut and pasted from somebody else. Mm. You, you, you could type in, just cut or copy one of the sentences out of that statement of faith, put it into your scroll bar and do a search on it, and you'll have 10,000 churches that have exactly that word for word. And so people just say, well, that sounds good, and we'll use that. It doesn't mean anything. The only thing that matters is this book and staying in it and understanding this book holding to it and being obedient to it even if you don't like what it says that is what matters and by doing that taking us back to where we started by doing that you are more accountable to god because the people that made those book of orders knew what the bible said when they made it and the next people probably knew but they w would rather to defer to the book of order than they would to the bible because they need their retirement or because they need to fill a pastor position in a little church that as uh, really wealthy people, or whatever the reason is. So we have to adhere to what the Word of God says and nothing else. Um, comment on uh, the line of thought that that was cultural. Then nothing in the Bible matters, and I hear that all the time. If that is true, if it is cultural, and if uh, 1 Corinthians, whatever, about men having long hair and women having long hair, and you have to keep that in context... Because people will say, well, I have long hair, right? What is long hair? What defines that? There is nothing in the Bible to determine what long hair is. And it has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about if you take it in its context anyway. But they will say that that is a cultural thing. That in Corinth, men and uh, male prostitutes had long hair. Well, one, there's no record of that anywhere. People just make stuff like that up to justify a position. But two, if you use that as your guiding premise, then it doesn't matter. Nothing prescriptive in Paul's writings, which are doctrine for the church age, no, now matter. If you take one verse out of the Bible and say, we're not going to adhere to that, this entire book means nothing to you. You have to be obedient to this word. Yes? And 
you've taught us context, and God clearly outlines an authority. That's right. Uh, level, uh, you know, where He is over the church. That's the right. Christ is over the the church. The ch church is over people, but men are over women. women. And, and it, that and is children. one Corinthians uh, fourteen, I think. Uh, one Corinthians right. 11. in the New Testament. And so, if He's given an authority level, that's right. Then we have to. You have to live by it, or you're you're it. just you've decided that you are now the arbiter of God's word, right. and we cannot do that. You're absolutely right. Yes. So it's such a conflict with a church I go to regarding some of the doctrinal errors, and I was always like, man, I'm like, it seems like man, I'm, I'm swimming against the stream. Then I went down to the bookstore and I read the faith and message of what they believe. Yep. And it's not always the same. Mm -mm. The Bible in Revelation says you add to it or it takes away from it. Mm -hmm. but, you know, so there's a lot of things that omit to be socially engaging with the That's community. right. Yeah. And, so and there's things to add in. To that. And I'm like, I went to school and I didn't go for three years, but some have been many more. Some have doctorate degrees. And yet they don't know certain things that you teach. I, I tell you what, a degree system. means nothing. Yeah. People ask me what college I went to, and it doesn't matter. I'll tell them if they want to know, but it doesn't make Even any Paul, difference. A degree means what? nothing. I would not have you ignorant, brother. That's right. Unawares of these truths, and he brings mysteries to light that which was withheld. And, and they were given to us for a reason. That's right. To learn, to grasp, to... That's right. To, to cherish. Now, let me, let me ask you something about, um, it, it, this is just a complete side issue. I mentioned it earlier, and I just want to get, kind of stimulate your thought on what I said. Is it, it says men aren't to have, uh, it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Okay. And like I said, it's a completely different subject, and it is completely misused by people. But I want to give you a, a question that if you were to go by that precept, and somebody was to say, well, he has long hair. Because I've had people say, well, your hair is too long, and the Bible says man shouldn't have long hair. And as I said, what is the standard? What does it mean to have long hair? But you do, what is the thing that almost every one of those people that says something like that, what do they have? Short hair. But I, I was going to get no more specific hair. because that's a guy and he's <laughs> it's a guy and he's got short hair. But what does his wife have? Hair. Short hair. Short hair. Oh. Okay. What about Linda? Yeah, no. Doesn't it say that heretic? Okay. okay. <laughs> so how do you defend that? And I, I, we're not going to go in there today. We're not going to do this today. I'm just getting you to think. I would say this is just if I was to be subjective about that and, and not taking it completely out of context and having nothing to do with the issue at hand. I would say you have short hair. You have she has short hair. She has short. She has short hair. She has short hair. We have one girl. That might be. That's still not very long. So I'm going to give you an a uh, a minus on that, and you too. Okay. What's that? What about Jody? It, it, same thing. Th those two ladies may qualify for. Okay. You see what I'm saying? That is a subjective evaluation. Every picture of Jesus has long hair. That's right. Okay. So now I've said that, and that has nothing to do with those verses. So we can go over those verses someday. We're not going to go over it today. Don't email me and ask about it. Or you can, and what I'll do is I'll send you my college paper because I did a college paper on that. And why, why did I do that? Here, here's the reason why I did a college paper on that particular issue. And if you want to know, I'll email it to you, as I said. And I probably have it on the Wonderful One website anyway. But um, I, I, the, one of my courses was, um, I don't remember the name of it. Anyway, um, Doug Beaumont was the professor. And he, one of the things you had to do was to take a thing in the Bible, a particular doctrinal issue, and you had to evaluate it in what was called a, syn a synchronistic study. Synchronistic? Yes, I think that's what it was called. And so um, he, he said, I would like you to pick a particular doctrine in the Bible 
and then email it to me and I will approve or disapprove mm -hmm. it and then you can do your study on it. And um, I decided I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I said, I emailed him and I said, Professor, I would like you to pick what you would like me to do. And he said, I want you to do that study. And so that's why I did a study on that particular passage. And it's, it's a great study. It was fun. It was, uh, um, uh, but I will give you a clue. Let's not go any deeper than this clue. Is that the word for head, a man's, uh, the head of a woman is a man. The head of a man is Christ. And um, the, the shaving her head, okay, it's the same word just as it is in English. My head is Christ, not meaning this, meaning my head, my authority. My head, oh, okay. But the head is the same word in Greek for head and authority, physical head and authority, just the way it is in English. That will give you a clue as to where that, that precept goes to. But it's a very involved study, and if you want it, I'll email it to you. I'm not gonna get into a debate with you on it. I, I'm not going to debate it because I know what it says and I know what uh, it, it is telling us, and it's not that Charlie's hair is too long and Linda's is too short. Okay. I love it here, Charlie. What's that? I love your beard the best. Yeah. Oh, you talk about long hair on a man. Wow. Um, okay. So let me finish the life application. We'll go into the next verse. Um, oh, I've got I've got a shirt that I was given after I started wearing my shirt, uh, my uh, growing my beard out again because I shaved it for that one reason back in 2012, and uh, my friends bought me a shirt with a meter on it. <laughs> And I am now down to the bottom of the meter. Oh if I pull God. it straight, it comes down to the really? bottom of the meter. So I'm I'm now like He-Man or something. Off the charts. Yeah, I'm off the charts. I'm going into uncharted territory. Um, okay. Oh, okay. I, I wore it just this week somewhere, and that's what reminded me of it. Anyway, um, okay. Uh, the eyes of others are watching us and anticipate that we will set the right example for right conduct. Today, as you go about your business, reflect on the areas where you may need to correct your habits so that they align with the name that you bear, the Lord Jesus. Because every person in here, I would assume, is a saved believer in Jesus Christ. I don't know your heart, but I would assume that, having dealt with all of you personally, you bear his name. And how are people going to perceive you based on your actions? And that's important, because you know you, you hear it all, and you're gonna hear it anyway. Ah, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. You hear it anyway, even if you're the most morally upright person in the world, they're still going to say it. But in their minds, they know it's not true if you're living for the Lord. So anyway, um, verse love. You're a Christian. You're a hypocrite. You're judgmental. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Sounds like you're doing the same thing there, Chief. Yes. Excuse me. What did you just do? Yeah. Josiah was not Manasseh's son. He was grandson. grandson. That's right. But it was Ammon. Ammon was Ammon. That's right. So, but he was the one that had the reforms, and he was the one that the Lord said to him. Well, I didn't um, want you to get emails. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't think I said his son. I think I said the next king or, or Yeah, yeah, okay, something like that. But anyway, yeah, I, 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 I was certain he wasn't the son. I knew there was at least one or two generations between the two because it took a while for the reforms to come in. But that shows you that even after all of that time, how long was it from Josiah to, uh, I'm sorry, from Manasseh to Josiah, and he still wasn't willing to forget. And so just because we've elected a new guy in this country, if the Lord holds us to the same standard as Israel, which that's his prerogative, I, 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 one way or another, but if he does, we've got a lot to account for in the past. You know, and I'm, I'm not trying to slam him too much, but I was not a big fan of George W. Bush either. I just wasn't. He allowed the left in this nation to run ramshot over him. He did not bring in what he should have as far as abortion. He, should, he did not bring in precepts which he should have. Forget the money, forget the greatness of America, forget all of those things, and look at the moral issues of a nation. 
He didn't do it. And before him was Clinton, and he didn't do it. But so Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was a good guy. Yes. I was going to say, too, if in the book of Genesis, when uh, Abel slew Cain, his blood cried out from the ground. That's right. How much blood is crying out from the ground? That's exactly right. And you know what? That, that, that precept did not end with Cain. You go to Genesis 9, verse 6. If you shed man's blood, by man's blood, uh, by man shall your blood be shed. And that's repeated in Numbers. And it is outside of the law. It is a precept which is outside of the law because it says that um, uh, in the land, before Israel came into the land, that they had heaped up judgment. The shedding of blood, uh, unless you uh, kill the person that shed blood, there is no atonement for that land. And that's a precept which is outside the law, not within the law. So it is an eternal standard of God. And all of the blood that is shed through abortion is accountable to the land, to the people of the land. And you had so, murders and everything else. Murder, all the murder. And we, we, I'm going to bring that precept up in the Prophecy Update this weekend as far as, as murder in this land and contrast it to something that somebody else, everybody's complaining about somewhere else in the world, and they're doing the right thing, even though they're not of the Christian religion. Okay, so we'll go on with that, and that'll so be Sunday. You know, Ammon was so bad that his servants killed him. Oh, that's right. That's why Josiah was eight. Yeah, he was just, a, that's right, he was eight when he took over, and he, uh, uh, anyway, the Lord called him home. He said, you know, I'm going to take you home so you're not going to see the disaster I bring upon this land. But you're right, that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, okay, 22 two, two twenty two. 222. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Okay. Anybody here ever committed adultery? Don't raise your hand. Because <laughs> you know Jesus' standard of that, don't you? Without yeah, me even getting into the verse yet. Right. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, and that means, yeah. you know, the opposite obviously has to be true. Women are guilty for looking at a guy with lust in their heart. So you're not exempt from that. He didn't say that, but the opposite has to be true. In other words, it's intent. It is intent. And so ask yourself that a question again. Don't raise your hand. Have you ever committed adultery? Um, this is the second of three verses asking those questions to which the Jews of his time had to answer yes. The first today concerns adultery. You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? The answer is yes, and it is found in the Gospels, as were the previous questions. And not only is the answer affirmative to literal adultery, but spiritual adultery as well. In Matthew 12, 39, it says this, Matthew 12, 39, got to go to Matthew, right? He's speaking to the Jews, and that's written to the Jews as Jesus is the king of Israel, so it's a great place to go, Matthew 12, 39. Um, let's see here, Matthew 12, 39, I get one more page. Um, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So that's spiritual adultery right there. They're asking him for a sign. Um, and no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Okay, I'm going to tell you something right now. Do not ask me about it because you can watch the sermon and you can find out. The sign of Jonah is not at all what you think it is. Okay, leave it at that. Don't ask me. Just watch the sermons. The sign of Jonah is not at all what you think it is. Okay, it is a tease because I want you to watch a sermon and grow in your knowledge of the word. But it is not what you think. Okay, so having said that, spiritual adultery is 
uh, in the Old Testament, it's called harlotry, worshiping idols, all of those type of things. It's also uh, tempting God, as they did with seeking for a sign, as a wicked and adulterous generation would do that. So adultery goes more than just physical adultery. We know what physical adultery is, but spiritual adultery is giving anything attention over God. And that's something that every one of us does every single day of our life, if you're honest about it. Yep. So it's, it, it, it's not that we intend to do it sometimes, but it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guarantee you that not everybody that has committed physical adultery intended to do it. Things happen in life, okay? People get into situations that they cannot get themselves out of. It's not that the Lord didn't give them a way out. It's just that they did not, take it. they didn't take it. They just, they, they've got themselves in a box and they're not taking it. So, um, okay, here we go. Um, Jesus accused those who came to him looking for a sign of the validation of his authority of being a wicked and adulterous uh, generation. The Ninevites to whom Jonah was sent repented at the preaching of Jonah without any miraculous sign. They didn't have anything. He walked in and he started talking to them, right? And what does it say? Let's go there. Let's just read chapter 3 of Jonah and uh, just because I typed it last week, and I want to see what I typed, I don't remember. I, Mondays are so brutal. I go to bed, and I literally, I, I'm just done. I lay down, and I'm out. So, um, Jonah, I'm going the wrong way. I don't know why I'm... Hello, Charlie. Um, let's see here. Micah, Jonah, Amos. All right, where are we? Uh, let's see. Come on, Charlie. I think I'm going the wrong direction, but you know, I am. Uh, Jonah chapter three. Yeah, we'll just we'll read that anyway because it's a great story. And um, uh, let's see here. Um, okay, I'm gonna before I get into Jonah three, I want to read you one verse in uh, chapter two, just one. And I want to tell you that I have disagreed with every single Bible translation and scholars' comments on this verse. And if you wait long enough and you pay attention, then you'll hear what I disagree with. Um, it says. Um, uh, where is this? Um, what verse was it that um, uh, your bill has passed over me? Deep oh, yeah, verse 5. The weeds surrounded me. This is Jonah 2.5. The weeds surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Every single Bible translation, they say different things, but every one of them and every scholar's comments on that verse I disagreed with, and I, Sergio happened to be at the house. It was over um, that week that I was uh, typing that, and I said, Sergio, I want to ask you a question. We went through it, and he said, it's as obvious as the nose on your face. That's what he said. He said, that is something that we would say in Israel, and it makes all the sense in the world. He says, I don't know why that's not the way that it was translated, but this is not, I, I am certain of it, but I'm going to qualify so in the sermon the, uh, not to trust me because I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it's something that when they speak to each other today, they would say, and I don't know why they missed it because it's so obvious what they're saying, but I'm not going to give so it to it's you. So it's a Hebrew idiom? It, uh, I would call it a Hebraism. It's not really an idiom, but it's something, it, I, I, we talked about it. I asked Sergio and Rhoda both, what do you think about that? How would you term it? And she said first, well, it, I, I would call it a verbal phrase. And then, uh, because she understood exactly as well what I was coming at. And then she said, no, I don't want to say that because I don't know if it's a verbal phrase or not. And I, I said, was well, it an idiom? And they said, well, I, we wouldn't call it an idiom. But it's something that you would say that would be as perfectly understood as saying, you know, I, I dropped dead, right? It's, it's some, and so, 2-5. 
And no big deal. There's no secret revelation or anything out of it. It's just I disagree with the translation. It means something that is not recorded there or in any of the 20 versions that I looked at. So, or any of the scholars. But we'll read verse 3, or chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now think of this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Okay? The word of the Lord came to Jonah. What do we have in our hand? The word of the Lord. Okay? Um... The second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to walk the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Verse 6, then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from his violence that is in his hands. How are beasts going to cry out to God? Are they sentient beings? Can they think? He includes them in here. The Hebrew indicates it. Okay. Okay. How can a king mandate that? There you go. You're going to get your answer. Um, uh, watch the sermon and you'll get your answer. Who can tell if God will t uh, turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he said he would do, bring upon them and he did not do it. And you know what? I'm, I'll give you this much of the sermon. That's all he said. He took the word of the Lord and those the word of the Lord is recorded and we don't need to go any further and say, well, he said this and he went. You know, a lot of scholars like to add in a lot of flour and preachers will add in a lot of flour to what Jonah said. We have recorded what he said. That's all the Lord wanted us to know that was said to Nineveh. And they believed him, based on five words in the Hebrew. And uh, one of the questions here, when the word came to the king. Right. Well, that one is debated both ways, and I think I give both options. But was it from the people, or was it that, uh, uh, no, it wouldn't have been from the Lord. It, w it was that the people came and told the nobles, and the nobles went to him. And I do talk about that, but it wouldn't be the Lord directly. He is the, pro the prophet of God. He is the mouthpiece. The word came to him either directly or indirectly. It could be that he heard and he says, I want to go out and listen to this guy, whatever. But um, the word did come to him and all the Lord wanted us to know is that he said those five Hebrew words and that is it. And they, the people repented. And yet the Jews had the entire law of Moses, all of the prophets speaking to them again and again. They had their history, which bore out their, their uh, judgment. They're turning back, their judgment, they're turning back, they're exiled, they're turning back and yet they didn't heed the word of the Lord. Now my question to you is, if they had all of that, and we have the dispensation of grace, all we need to do is believe. How much more accountable are we than they are? Five words to the people of Nineveh, and they repented, right. and they well, sat in dust and ashes. As, as I, if the Lord was using Nineveh to make... That's exactly jealous. what it is. That is exactly what he is doing. So I'm glad that you... Don't take away my sermon, that. but that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> The, exactly what he's doing. No, I'm glad you are. I'm glad way. you are. Just, you know. That is what he is doing. So anyway, there you go. Um, uh, it, just what a wonderful.
beautiful thing. And how, how guilty are we before God? Because we have this book, and I've said this before, we've got it in every house in America. Almost atheists, everybody's got a copy of the Bible. They may never pick it up, but it's in there. And atheists know the Bible far better than Christians do, for the most part. They can tear apart your arguments. Uh, the guy, you weren't there on um, on uh, Monday. I went. Believe it or not, I stayed up past 8 o'clock. I did leave early, but I stayed up for Usama. Oh, you um, did? Yeah, and he did a very good job this year. And uh, once again, this guy is not a Muslim, and yet he knows the Quran far better than all Muslims. Far better. He's translated the Quran into English. And if you can work within the confines of somebody's text to work against them, then you have a leg to stand on. And atheists happen to have a leg to stand on. They just have denied the revelation of the word. But they can tear apart Christians in the process, yes. To a degree. You, to a degree. You need to repeat what Jim said because the people... No, 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 no. I'm not repeating it. You mean as far as what he said about Jonah? What he said about the linear thing. You, oh. you, 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 you said you're exactly right. But yes, I'm not going to repeat it because they can watch the sermon. I'm not giving it all away. But he, he's on the right track. He's on the right track with that. They can watch the sermon. That's all right. I'm not going to get you. He know. said that in the sermon, did he? No, 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 no. I'm saying that's, that's it, it, what he is thinking is exactly what is correct oh, in that okay. precept. Yeah. So y'all can watch the sermon. I, if I go giving it away, every time I do that, then I see people sleeping in the congregation. They've got to get up and ring the bell. So I don't want to have to do that. Uh, okay, so uh, let's go on. Um, hey, Charlie, one more thing. On yes. When you think about Nineveh and you think about Jonah, how Nineveh, did what they did that's just miraculous the miraculous Jonah was using, he had no he wanted to do that in the worst not he wanted to go as far away and not absolutely right. and then afterwards he has a pity part for himself after they, he should have been so happy so happy he but absolutely but, was used by god and he didn't want to be used by god that's right and he's being used as a picture i'm not going to go any further because he already said <laughs> it but he's being used as a picture of something else so it, it, watch the sermon and, and i i haven't got it all done yet so I, there's going to be things that i have to modify but it, 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 it is a wonderful story, and you're right on target with that as well. Um, uh, now, I had a thought, and I was going to give it to you, and it's gone. Okay, it's gone. Um, all right, so, um, it, but it was based on what you said, not what I was going to say. So anyway, um, uh, Jesus looked for the sign. The people of Israel had been given the sign of Jonah in Jesus' preaching that judgment was coming, just as Jonah gave. And yet they failed to repent. They, the stewards of the oracles of God, and the people from whom came the prophets saw the repentance of Nineveh based on the word from God. I remember what I was going to tell you, though. Hello, Elaine. Uh, from the God they served, but they were unwilling to do what even the pagans had done. They were attempting to excuse themselves from their obligation based on God's supposed favoritism of them, but instead they only incurred greater guilt, not lesser. Once again, the more you know, the more that you have the knowledge of, the more guilty you are. And they were exiled not for 70 years, but for so far 2,000 years, right? And they were returned on uh, May, uh, May 14, 1948. And they received Jerusalem again on June 6, 1967. And they're not doing a very good job of it still Chosen because they're people. not in obedience to the Lord. What? Chosen people. Chosen people, yeah. For what? For what? When a Jew says, well, we're the chosen people, you have to ask them, chosen for what? Put it back on them. You explain to me what you're chosen for. Because if you're chosen to bring God glory, you haven't been doing it. If you're chosen to, you know, whatever. Just bring the message of God. Bring the message. Whatever it is that they claim, have you been doing it? 
Exactly. Chosen him, for what? He didn't put him here for Nobel Peace Prize. That's right. Nobel but Science you know what? Prize. At the same time, he's blessed them even in their exile. Yeah. All how many uh, uh, Nobel Science Prizes? How many uh, you know uh, the, the the wealth that they've produced and the the medicine that they they are blessed by God and yet they use that as something that they believe they are entitled to when in fact they should turn around and glorify God with it. And so the problem is of the heart with them. And Jesus will get that sorted out at the end of the tribulation period. It will get sorted out. But I do remember what I was going to say when you were talking about the repentance is we have our own examples of it in our you know British and American society. John Wesley went out and he preached and you know like 30,000 people would turn to the Lord. And then you had uh, the Great Awakening. You had, um, what was his name? Um, John Whitfield. Uh, John, uh, yeah, what? Whitfield. Whitfield. Uh, uh, George Whitfield, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. George Whitfield. And uh, Charles Edwards. Finney. Even if you don't like Charles Finney as approach, man, he went out and preached and people turned, right? So what, who? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, right? You know, so you, you did have times where people were willing to respond to the word. And I don't think unless we have some great depression or calamity... It's not going to happen in this nation because prosperity breeds turning away from God. It just does. Um, who was it? Was it Rhoda? Somebody? No, 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 it wasn't. It was somebody else that I uh, was over in Budapest or somewhere, and they, you know, some place where people were really poor, and they were there was a missionary, and um, they said, "Oh, we feel so bad for you. You know, you have such a difficult time." And they said, "We feel bad for you." And they said, "You've got all that money in America." You've got all of that temptation to fall away from the Lord, and you have fallen away from the Lord. And they said, we love the Lord here. <laughs> so you think about it, 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 it it's, it's not what you think it is. The blessings almost always turn into a curse because we don't know how to use them. Um, okay, so concerning literal adultery, we got time. Uh, the account in John 8, 1 through 11, pointedly shows that the people were willing to judge a woman caught in adultery by bringing her to be stoned, and yet excuse the male who she was with, though he bore the guilt. Jesus then challenged them to cast the first stone if they were without sin. How many cast a stone? None. That's right. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, the premise of the law is that if one commandment is broken, the, all, the entire law is broken because it's one body of law. All right, that's James 2.10. As a matter of fact, just so somebody watching online that doesn't know that will we'll prove that he really said that. One commandment. That's a great verse to use when you're witnessing to people. When they say, well, I'm better than. Because, you know, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I'm not as bad as, or I'm, I've done. Doesn't matter. James 2.10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point... He is guilty of all, of all. And that's one of the best verses to use when you're witnessing the people. And if you ask somebody, can I tell you about Jesus? And they say, sure, because almost everybody does. It's very rare for somebody to say no. And you say, um, you know, how do you think about going to heaven? You get one of two basic answers. I mean, it goes into a million possibilities, but two, one of two basic answers. I'm already headed to hell. They know that they're a sinner. They, they know that they're lost. Or the other is... I, and then they compare themselves either to themselves or to something else. If they say, I know I'm going to hell, or I'm lost, or I, I don't know what to do, all you need to do is give them grace. That's all you need to do. Do you know that Jesus died for your sins? What? That's all you need. You don't need to go any further. You don't need to talk about the law. You don't need to talk about their sin. They already know it. But if somebody says, 
I've done this, or I'm better than, or I'm not Hitler. It doesn't matter what they say. If they do not say, I'm already on this path, then they think they're on this path. And all you need to do is take them to James 2.10 and say, do you know if you violated one precept, just one, the whole law is broken. So you're no better than the murderer. And some people will take offense at that until you explain it to them. And then they say, oh, I never thought of it that way. And then you give them grace. But you need to first get somebody to understand that they have violated God's standard before you give them grace. And then give them the grace. And that is how you witness to people. That's the way that Jesus did it. The, you know, the rich young guy came up to him and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, you know the commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, do this and do that. He says, well, I've done all that since I was young. So he's smug because yeah. he hasn't done all that. And what does he do? He said, well, then go sell everything you have and, you know, follow me. And he left sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus proved to him that he didn't follow the commandments. He had put money above God. He had broken the last commandment, idolatry. He idolized his wealth more than God. Nothing wrong with being rich. You can be as rich as, you know, uh, Donald Trump. Yes. You can be as famous as Donald Trump. You can be as good-looking as Donald Trump. It doesn't matter as long as you have the Lord as your priority. Is he good-looking, ladies? No, no. But he's got great hair, doesn't he? Okay, I don't know. Yeah, he's got great hair. I haven't got one nod yes, so I'm going to go with the... Uh, I was wrong on the good-looking thing. But you see what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what... You what? Maybe once. Maybe once, okay. Maybe once he was handsome. Okay, so, James 2.10, we said that. In both respects, in this account, they were proved to be adulterers, okay? They've broken the law. Um, none were without sin. All had broken the commandment. And so, by breaking one commandment, they had broken the entire commandment, and thus they were all adulterers, every one of them. They could not stone her because one, one precept was broken, the entire law was broken. They're guilty. Paul next makes an interesting comment. You who abhor idols... Do you rob temples? The people of the law had transgressed so far in the past that the land was literally full of idols. Because of this and many other transgressions, and all you need to do is read the book of Judges and Kings, the land was filled with it. He said, more are your gods than your cities. Uh, I think is the way he said it. Uh, misquote, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. He says, he's telling the people there are just idols everywhere. Okay, and because of that and many other transgressions, God's judgment came upon them, and they were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. The lesson concerning idolatry was well learned, but this only took care of the outward, blatant sin of having idols set up for worship. Obviously, the, the nitpicky people in Israel would walk around, they'd say, well, that's an idol, you can't have that. They didn't take care of the heart problem, and so idolatry re remained running rampant, even though there weren't physical idols. Despite the external change, it did nothing to inwardly change the people. Their hearts remained greedy and set on idolatry, even if it wasn't demonstrated in bowing to idols. Instead, they had set up idols in their hearts. And Jesus shows us this in Matthew 21. So let's go there, Matthew 21, verses 12 and 13. Matthew 21. Mark. Matthew 21, 12 and 13. There we are. Uh, let's see here. He said, um, then Jesus went into the temple of God. He just read that, didn't he? I don't think so. What's that? No, that's, well, yes, but under a different context I read it. Um, he went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money. Yes, we did read that earlier. Same precept. Um, of those uh, who sold doves, 
And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Yes, we did read that. But you have made it a den of thieves. Same thing, though. It's it, One is stealing. The other one is idolatry because they're still putting something above God. Okay, so this, it, the precept remains true. And I must have done that on purpose when I typed this. But I did because there it is and there it is. Um, so... Um, as we continue to see, the very things which the Jews found fault in others were found in them as well. They were trusting in their status as Jews and not in a personal, obedient relationship with God. And if any of you know Jews here, and quite a few of us have witnessed to them, you know that this still permeates them, just like it does the non-Jewish society of the world. I'm not trying to pick on Jews. It's Christians too. <laughs> Christians as well. That's right. But the difference between a Christian that has idols set up in his house is that... I don't know what you're relying on, though, sometimes until you, until things happen to you. Well, that's right. You think that you're strong. You think you're strong, and then the Lord humbles you. And then you find out. (laughs) That's right. But the difference between a person that has been saved by Jesus and a Jew that hasn't, and they're doing the same thing, is that they've been saved by grace, and the Jew hasn't. They have to come through Jesus. That's the difference, is that the Christian will lose rewards... They may lose their joy, as you noted, in this life because the Lord humbles them, but they're not going to lose their salvation. I'm sorry, the Bible does not teach that ever. It does not teach a loss of salvation. You're never going to get me to change my mind on that precept because it doesn't say it. So if somebody comes to Christ, he has saved them. He has sealed them with his Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And if he takes that away then it was one, a bad guarantee, and two, it means God made a mistake, and God does not make mistakes. If you are saved, you are saved. Nor does he change his mind. He does not change his mind. Our passage. That's right. That we just read in Jonah. That was in Father. No, well, no, it wasn't just that, too. It's more than that, is that... Um, and I'll explain that in the sermon. Okay, is I'm that, sorry, I keep, yeah. I keep trying to poke... No, no, that's okay, though, but you're right. It, it, it was... When, sometimes when it says that the Lord relented and did something, it doesn't mean the way that we think. It is uh, what we would call an anthropomorphic, um, uh, ascribing a, a character of man of, to God so that we can understand what he has done. And I'll explain that in detail when we get there. But you're right. God does not change. Okay. Um, anyway, um, so having said that, no, I'm not going to get that now. Okay, so... Um, uh, where was I? We can see life application. We'll go into that right now. And uh, uh, no, I'll go back one more paragraph. Um, as we continue to see the very things which the Jews found fault in, I read that um, uh, others were found in them as well. They were trusting in their status as Jews and not a personal obedient relationship with God. Each of us needs to continually evaluate our own station to ensure that we don't fall into this trap. That's my final thought on that. We, we need to make sure that just because we... Paul is pointing out to the Jew his errors, and then the Gentiles start to feel smug. And then he goes to the Gentiles and says, well, you know what? Then he talks about breaking off the branches, and he says that, you know, you should fear. Because if they were broken off were the natural branches, <coughs> then you can be broken off as well, and they can be grafted in as well. So he wants nobody in the book of Romans to feel smug in the position that they're in. It's not a good place to be before God. Um, life application. Though we may be born into a Christian home... Charlie Garrett, we are not by default Christians. I thought for my whole life, somebody asked me, well, what are you? I'm a Christian, right? And I could have been just as easily a Muslim or a Buddhist or anything else, and it wouldn't have made any difference to me. I know Muslims that are not Muslims. They they don't practice Islam. I lived in a Muslim nation for three years, and 
they couldn't have told you anything about it. They were just by name, they were born into that family. And I know Christians to this day that I'm a Christian, and yet they've never called on Jesus as Savior. So we have this thing where it becomes almost a, a, a family possession rather than a right. personal Inheritance. That's right, an inheritance, and it's not. And I went through that most of my life. I think a lot of us in here did. So, though we may be members of our church, it doesn't mean we have a right standing with God. Think especially of people like Jehovah's Witnesses, which isn't a Christian denomination anyway, but they think that their affiliation has brought them into a right standing. Catholic, same thing. I am a Catholic, and therefore I am in good with God. I go and say my Hail Marys, and, and he absolves me, and the church takes care of my problem. So, oh, yeah, Catholic for sure. And um, one of the things about Jews and Catholics, I heard a Jewish person say this, so it's not a slam on him. He said it. He said, um, oh, we Jews are a lot like Catholics. He says, um, we worry about this life, and we let our, he said, the priest or the rabbi, we let our priest or rabbi take care of our next life. Right. And talk about a scary place to be in. The mafia you know, do that too. The mafia do that too, that's right. So that, that's a really scary place to be. When you're putting your trust in somebody else other than Jesus, my goodness. Yeah, you're set, you've set yourself up for a fall. But he said that openly. He said, we're, we're just the same here. There's, there's so, many parallels. Uh, there really are. There are a lot of them. Um, so uh, the only thing we can trust in for God's favor is our faith. And that's it, mixed with obedience. We have faith, and then we're to be obedient after that. If we don't have obedience, there's one of two things that show a lack of obedience. One is that you were never saved in the first place. And that's the position that you want to hold with somebody that is not being obedient to the Lord. You can't question their salvation because only the Lord knows that. But if they're not obedient, then you would assume that their conversion wasn't true. But if their conversion was true and they are saved, then if they're not living for the Lord you need to let them know that their rewards are not worth whatever they're doing. I'm, they're loss of rewards. It is not worth what they're doing. And some people say, I know I'm saved. I, I know I was saved, but I just, I, I, I'm, I'm going to keep doing whatever I'm doing. And that's their own perverse path, and they want to follow it. They're not going to lose their salvation, but they're going to lose their joy in the end, and they will lose their rewards. Yes. And the people who love them. Suffer too. And the people they love who they are misleading. That's right. Everybody suffers when somebody is not obedient to their calling. Their kids Everybody. might never come to know the Lord. That's right. You know, I, I, I have a friend, and I, yeah, I won't give anything away with this, uh, a guy that I see almost every day in my life, and I, I, as I do with each person that I, all the jobs I have, I usually, when a new person comes into one of the stores, eventually I kind of pull them off to the side and I tell you about Jesus. And so this guy, I, I've known him for a while, and I, I said, you know, when you're passing by, come down to my house, and uh, I want to talk to you about something. Okay, and he came by, and I talked to him about Jesus, and he says, well, I'm saved. And I said, well, what about your, because he, yeah, I'm not giving anything away. He, he had just gotten married not too long before, and he said, um, he said, well, I, you know, I, I just have never told her about him. I said, is that worth it to you, that you would live with a person that doesn't know the Lord, and you're not going to at least try to tell her about what you've received? I can't even imagine that. I can't even imagine that. that you're, oh, I'm telling you, I, I don't know what that is, but boy, that was not something that, you know, I said. Could be insecurity. In, in, insecurity, Most whatever. What and is. I told him, I said, if you want, we'll get together, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm not going to leave him hanging, but he just didn't seem like it was an important thing to him. Really? And I thought, isn't that sad? As a matter of fact, I started talking to him about it, and I said, you know what John 3.16 says? And he quoted it to me, and I said, how'd you know that? And that's when I realized... He says, oh, yeah, I, I got saved, blah, blah, blah. And 
whatever. So, but she will suffer. The children may never come to know the Lord if they have kids. Terrible, terrible. Um, let's see here. When these things, the faith mixed with obedience, are properly exercised, God will surely turn his face towards us. So take time today to evaluate your walk with the Lord. Okay? Um, he walks with me, talks with me. What is that song? Oh, yeah, that's right. I just came to mind. Okay, 223. He lives. He lives. That's it. He lives. Okay, go ahead. Verse 23. 23. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Okay, he's, here's the third set of questions. This is Paul's final question of indictment against Jews who rested in the law, but failed to adhere to the precepts they supposedly held in such high esteem. Excuse me. You who make your boast in the law implies that they have something worthy of boasting about, right? You got a law? Hey, we got the law. I can boast about the law. It's something that obviously you can boast in or you would think you could. Um, nobody would boast in something of no value, right? I got a pretty wife, I'm gonna boast in her, right? I've got uh, a car, a Maserati, it's worth a million dollars, I'm gonna boast in it. But if something doesn't have any value, you know, I got this car that, that four flat tires and that no motor in it, I'm, you know, you're not gonna boast about it, okay? So, um, uh, therefore the implication is that the law is good. And Paul says elsewhere, the law is good, just and holy. The law is right, and I quote it, uh, and the law is holy. Holding up the law as a vital part of their status, meaning the Jews, implies its great value because their status is derived from the law. If you think about it, the Jews' status is only derived from one place. They take their history back to Abraham. But Abraham, through Abraham to Isaac, the son of promise, from Isaac to Jacob, to the twelve sons of Israel who received the law. That is what established them as the covenant people. Remember, we've been going through it for the past uh, 104 sermons, and 105 is next week, our last sermon of, of the book of Exodus. And what is it that the Lord says? I'm not going to go up in their M-I-D, in their midst. Thank you. I'm not going to go up in their midst. He says, they're not going to be my people. I, I will go before them. Uh, yes. See the writing on the wall. Oh, you see the writing on the wall. So what is it? Literally. Yeah, literally. Okay, so the last sermon of the book of Exodus is going to explain their position before God. It's going to explain that. The good part about it and the bad part about it. There are good, good parts of adhering to the law, and there are certainly bad parts about adhering to the law. But it is the law which makes them the people that they are. The law. They could trace their ancestry back to Abraham, the man of faith, but they don't say we're people of faith, do they, ever? No. They boast in who they are as a people which were brought together under the covenant at Moses. That is when they became the Lord's people, and that's when the Lord accepted them as his people. That's why when Jesus, he told Jesus, yeah, but we're sons of Abraham. Right. And then he, he, he threw it back. Yeah, if you were sons of Abraham, you would, that's right. He threw it right back in their face, but they could boast in the law all day long. They said, well, we're Jews, and, you know, we have the law, we have the temple, and what are they doing in Israel right now? They're, they're, that's right. They've uh, anointed the cornerstone. They've made all of the implements for the, the uh, temple. They haven't built the temple yet, but guess what? We had in the prophecy update about two months ago. They have selected the next high priest of Israel. He is alive today. He will be consecrated. He will be ordained. He will be installed. And he will have no bearing. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think I'm going to say this in the sermon this week, but it's just one thing, is that what is it that they are sowing onto the veil 
that's being made right now in Israel? What is it that's on the bale, sewn onto the bale? Cherubim. Okay. And what does that imply? Kept them out of the Garden of Eden. It is a picture. They are they are sewing their separation from God right now in Israel. Those cherubim are being woven onto the veil and saying, we have no part with God. Think of it. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. He has gotten us access. The veil was torn. We're allowed into the most holy place because of the blood of Christ. And they are sewing right now in Israel. Cherubim are, are they're, they're sewing themselves out of the Garden of Eden. Think of it. Okay, so, and now you don't have to be awake during that part of the sermon, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, where was I? Oh, 2.23. You just read 2.23, right? I did. Okay, this is Paul's... Oh, I read that too. Um, you who make your boast in the law implies that they have something to boast about. Holding up the law as a vital part of their status implies its great value because their status is derived from the law. As an example, consider a Bible preacher. Okay, we got Burke over here. He stands in the pulpit and proclaims the glory and splendor of the word. He preaches its precepts. He condemns those who don't adhere to it. His livelihood is based on the Bible. His status is based on the Bible, and the people's trust of the Bible is based on his determined mindset about the Bible. Everything is in relation to that book, that thing that he's holding in his hand every Sunday. All of who he is and what he has is because of the Bible. He boasts in the Bible, but Paul goes on. Despite all of the boasting, Paul asks, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? He's asking this to the Jews. The very law the Jews stand on for their livelihood and status is dishonored when they break it. In essence, they have religion, but they are not redeemed. They have appearance without reality. They profess, but they do not possess. They have orthodoxy, but they lack orthopraxy. That means you have right doctrine, orthodoxy. We have that, but orthopraxy, do we practice our doctrine, right? Catholics have the greatest orthodoxy in the world. They know the Trinity. They know the virgin birth. They know this and that and one thing and another. They know it perfectly, and they don't have the, the deeds because the heart isn't geared towards the deeds, all right? Um, so they know every precept, but they have no proper practice. Quoting Isaiah, Jesus states these words to the religious leaders of his time. Matthew 15, Matthew 15. Uh, where are we? Uh, verses 7 through 9. He says, um, I'll just go back. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And I've read this uh, already. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. He who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever has uh, his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me as a gift of God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandments of God of no effect by your traditions. Verse 7. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right? How many times have we seen Bible preachers? And I'm talking about people that have been in the pulpit, and you know, right on TV you've seen them. They preach the word of God. They conduct themselves in line with the Word of God, talking to everybody, you, you need to do this and you need to do that. They make their money from the Word of God. All the things that I read you before, okay? Bishops, pastors, cardinals, evangelists, and stand on the Christian <coughs> message in precept, but fail to adhere to it in practice. 
Their words and their actions do not sink. Who's a Jerry Falwell? And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to say these were good or bad pastors. I'm saying that they derived their sustenance from this book. They told people, you need to live this way. You need to... The, the thing about people like Joyce Myers, it just baffles me, and Paula White, is that they're saying, you need to hold on to this book. And I guarantee you, they never go to the part that says they shouldn't be in the pulpit, right? I guarantee you that they will never go to that part of the Bible. They will skip over that. We're going to go on to the book of, uh, um, you know, uh, Uzziah or something, because we're not going to get, right. They, they will skip over that part. But they are telling you, oh, look it. The Bible says this, and they get in, and the Greek says this, and oh, and and yet they're not living according to the Word of God. All right. What they say if they're called on that. I have no. Well, you know what? I have people that will will try to justify their position by saying, well, what one of you said already, it's cultural. Oh, that was. Um, but also, I've had people say, well, that verse actually means when it's as black and white and as clear as you know, and it, it, it is said in so many different ways implicitly. Not just explicitly, but implicitly. Here's a good example of it. Um, uh, bishops or elders, we'll say elders, are to be but the uh, husband of but one wife. That's implicit that it has to be a male. Because a female can't have a wife. Right? Well, I'm, I'm talking about biblically. I'm, biblically. I'm not talking about Obamaly. I'm talking about biblically. Okay? So th that's one of about 25 implicit statements. It is sad. Anyway, so of one wife. Okay, so let's go on because um, we only got four, four more minutes. Um, Albert Barnes rightly states that, and I'm talking about these people that, that hold to the Word of God and they don't live according to the Word of God. Albert Barnes, who I love, I, I love this guy, I can't wait to meet him someday. He rightly states that it matters little what a man's speculative opinions may be. His practice may do far more to disgrace religion than his profession does to honor it. It is the life and conduct and not merely the profession of the lips that does real honor to the true religion. And I know pastors in my own life that I've known personally that have brought a stain on the name of Christ, that have brought a stain on his name and that the people around have reason to uh, you know, make posts and jokes about the stupid Christians and on and on and on because they're not willing to adhere to the word of God. And sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes it's the failings that we talked about earlier, but some people just don't care. You get these, especially televangelists, they, 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 they rape people of money. They, they say things that, and then they go out and they fly around on Learjets, and they do things that are so ostentatious, and you think, where, how do you, how do you sleep at night living like that? How can you sleep at night doing that type of thing? Anyway, um, yeah, and it, like I said, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with receiving a good paycheck. But it, a, a preacher that is making 50 and $60 million to be able to buy a Learjet and they have a, a 20,000 square foot house, there is something wrong with what is going on there. Ravenous there, wolves. Th th yes, ravenous wolves. Anyway, and I, I, I don't want to get too far on that because there are people that had money when they became preachers. I live on probably the nicest piece of property in Sarasota County. And that goes back to 1948 to a forefather of mine. It has nothing to do with me. But people could say, well, hey, listen, that's a really nice place. All right. It had nothing to do with that. And I would gladly move out of there tomorrow and live in one of these little upstairs apartments. And it wouldn't bother me a bit. You know, I hate to give up the house that I'm in, but I, thank you, Grandpa. When there were 200 people on Siesta Key, 200, nobody wanted to live out there. There were mosquitoes. 
There were fishermen and there were people that were booze runners and that was it. And no air conditioning. Imagine what it was like back then. Uh, it, terrible, terrible. But you know what? I'm very thankful where I'm at and if somebody wants to find fault in that, they're going to find fault in it. But I, I'm, I'm blessed because of somebody else's hard work and foresight. Um, so anyway, um, uh, Albert Barnes says that a Christian by name only is not a Christian. There must be a moment in the person's life when true acknowledgement of one's own depraved state is realized. After that, it is incumbent on the saved soul to demonstrate it in outward workings of the internal change. To fail in this can only bring disrepute upon the preception of the Bible and upon the person of Jesus by those who look in their sad direction. So, little life application and we are done. Um, we often make our mental associations of things unseen by the things which we see. If we buy a car, a Ford perhaps, and it is a lemon, then our perception of Ford, the company, will be negative, right? Fix or repair daily. Found on road dead. Because, right, okay? That's, what we, that's the perception that we get because of one car. Now think of that in human terms. When you've got somebody that's up there in the pulpit condemning everybody else because of the things they're doing wrong and he's doing the same things, what are people going to think? All right? Um, so um, uh, if our friends buy Fords too and they're all lemons, the name of Ford will be found in low esteem among those looking for a car, okay? Um, oh, you know what? That's actually part of um, 224. Next week's, I, I was reading the wrong thing. So never mind that. Forget what I just said. I was reading the wrong paragraph. Um, here's, here's my uh, life application. Are you living out the precepts that you speak to others? If not, mixed signals are being sent, which can only adversely affect your testimony and their faith. Take time to evaluate your actions and align them with your professions. Okay, and then 224, we'll get into that next week, and I'll repeat the same paragraph again. Yes, sir? It's like on Saturdays when, when you see Jehovah's Witnesses come in, you go to the other side of the street. You betcha. Because you don't want that community to see you. Saying hi to them. I do not want to, because once I've done that, I have, I, people will see that I am now acknowledging them as mm -hmm. acceptable, and I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, I don't even want to, I don't want to wave at them, I don't want to look at them. Send message by avoiding them. By avoiding them, that's right. If you uh, uh, welcome them into your home, he says, you share in their wicked work. So don't, don't, uh, you know, and that's not to say to bring them into your home and debate them. But if people see that you're welcoming them to your home, you're sharing in their wicked work. Let me ask you, Lyle, do you uh, pray out loud? Do I pray out loud? Yes. yes. Would you like to close us in prayer? Well, it's up to you. If not, it's totally fine. Well, sure. Okay, please do. Well, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fellowship and for Charlie and all mm -hmm. of the things that he has done in leading us in the proper interpretation of your word, which is the guiding principle that holds entire world together mm -hmm. and we pray that you will come very quickly yes, Lord. and get us out of here <laughs> in, your, in Jesus name Amen. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's. Uh, you know let me. We should not have tried to run those Jehovah's. Yeah, that's true. We that shouldn't have done that. That was not very nice of us to do that. Where is my? Okay. Give me one second, and we're going to back up, and we'll say goodbye to these folks online. Okay. We love you guys. Have a wonderful week. Okay. We'll see you uh, Sunday, hopefully. Okay. We got this. I'm going to leave that on for 20 seconds or so. What's that? Oh.
I don't think it's, see, this is actually goes in this part right here. This is where the Sunday. Oh, I do. Thank you very much. Wow, wow, wow. Yes, it is.